Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, the Defence Secretary's full and frank discussion with Army top brass on the treatment of women. We've got to get the culture right and make sure that we aren't making some of the disciplinary mistakes we are at the moment. We do also, out of the other side of our mouth, encourage a laddish culture. A review of army culture is promised, but can it make a difference? They need to act now, you know, and I think it's all about attitude. I think it's all about the commitment to the task in hand. Also on SITREP, Belarus accused of weaponizing migration to destabilize Europe, but why? And a hundred years of the poppy appeal, but what's it for today? They understood my military background, the, the RBL. I needed help with somebody who understood where I was coming from. This week, the Army Board was summoned to meet the Defence Secretary for what some reports characterised as a dressing down. Ahead of the meeting, the Defence Secretary made clear he wanted to discuss deep concerns about disciplinary problems, especially sexual harassment and abuse. We've got to make sure that some of these stories that we've seen both in the media, but also I, that I know of that haven't been in the media, are dealt with properly. You know, we, we are underscoring in women in the Army. Uh, you know, I listened and I've read intently to the report by the House of Commons Defence Committee. There's a whole load of recommendations, but it's not just about reports and recommendations. We've got to get the culture right. And I'm determined that when I talk to the army, we're there to say, what are we going to do next? Because you're going to get a new looking army. We've got to make sure that that army is populated by people from the 21st century who live in a way and tolerate each other and make sure that we, we, we aren't making some of the disciplinary mistakes we are at the moment. Well, after the meeting, a joint statement from the Defence Secretary and Chief General Staff described it as a full and frank discussion that agreed to address core and cultural issues. The Army also issued a four-point plan which includes an independent audit of Army culture. But the outgoing Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, told the Commons Defence Committee, while a long-term culture cultural shift as needed, it has to be balanced too. We're talking about long-term cultural change and I think that um, you know you can have a, have a go at it for, for four years but you can't take your foot off the accelerator, you've got to keep going at this. And part of the reason you have to do that, I'm afraid, and I'm on the record as having said this to CGS and I've said it to CDS, is that we do also, out of the other side of our mouth, encourage a laddish culture. And part of the reason we encourage a laddish culture is ultimately our soldiers have to go close and personal with the enemy. Now, what you've got to try and do is to square both these mm. um, outputs, and that's what we have to work on. But, but, but that's, not, that's, that's not, no, no excuse for, I, for treating not, and attacking women, is it? No, of course it's not. But, but what one has to do is one has to get people who are building these teams to understand that the team will be a better team if it's more diverse and it's more inclusive. Well, we can speak now to the former Labour MP, Madeleine Moon, who sat on the Defence Committee for 10 years. And Madeleine, good to speak to you. What do you make of the General Carter's evidence there? Well, I, I just feel frustrated at how slow the army has been to recognise this, because I was certainly talking about this, um, putting forward a report on behalf of the Defence Committee, gosh, nearly 10 years ago. We had the... Con Continuous Attitude Survey has demonstrated over and over again the problem that exists. Uh, the Ombudsman has demonstrated and commented about the prob problems of bullying and harassment of women. And yet, only now are they beginning to take it seriously. 
And I have to say, in terms of um, laddish culture, I thought there was a bit of laddish culture going on in the meeting. In 10 years, I have never heard anyone at any rank in the military refer consistency to malleting, bomb bursts, and rogering out. Mm. I don't know whether it was because it was an all-male committee with a number of people who uh, had served, but it, it came over to me as very inappropriate language. Yeah, but um, Madeline, I've, everything we've been told by the UK Armed Forces over the last few years does indicate a strong commitment to women in the armed forces. I mean, the commitment seems to be there. The words are right. What do you think is going wrong? Well, words are easy. But then you're told, well, actually, the culture is laddish and it's important to have that laddish culture. Well, it isn't because I thought it was interesting that one of the things that General Carter talked about was the importance of the Jeff. Now, the Jeff has Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, Netherlands, Norway and Sweden. Ask any of those nations if they promote a laddish culture. Mm. And I'll tell you, the answer is no because I've talked to senior personnel in all of those militaries. Madeline, I know that Norway and Sweden have been cited as doing a better job at this, but a study this year did found that almost half the women in Norway's armed forces had experienced sexual harassment in the last year, so it's still a problem there. Yes, it is. But what they are is focused on it. It's a bit like the US at the moment. They are undertaking major changes and pushing through legislation to alter the whole military justice system so that there is a different attitude because as we all know what happens is a woman goes to complain and she's told oh this will go on your record it won't do you any good in terms of your career that person is a, a good soldier we wouldn't want to lose them so back off and most women will withdraw and I cannot tell you how many phone calls, meetings, emails and letters I have had, both from people who served many years ago, actually men and women who had faced rape and very serious sexual assaults, who just left mm. because mm. they could not make the complaint, they couldn't get justice, and it's left them with years of trauma and few have ever told their family the truth of what they faced. In terms of army culture itself, the head of the army has ordered an independent audit as well as changes to training and education. It's reported that would include training on sexual consent for every soldier. What more would you like to see? Well, I do think it starts from the top. You look at the head of the armed forces in Australia and a YouTube video where he talks directly to personnel and says, if you don't like the fact that women are equal in the Australian armed forces, get out because we don't need you. You know, when you've got allegations of bullying and sexualized behavior at Sandhurst, what chances there for the lower ranks? Madeline Moon, really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today. We'll hear from a former senior RAF officer in a moment, but before that, let's bring in Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, just explain the makeup of the Army Board, because it's been reported, though not confirmed by the Ministry of Defence, that every person at that meeting was male. 
Entirely likely, yeah. There's uh, 12 or 13 people on it. So the Secretary of State for Defence is on it and the ministerial team. And then, of course, the Chief of the General Staff is on it. And then his team, his defence, his deputy and his assistant. And then the Adjutant General's on it, the um, Quartermaster General, the Head of Land Command and so on. And all of those are men, as it happens. Now, there is one member of the ministerial team, Baroness Goldie, who is the, the, the least of the ministerial team in the sense that she is unpaid and she's a s- spokesperson for the MOD in the Lords. She might have been there, but I rather doubt it. Um, so the 12 people around the table would have all been men because they occupy those roles at the moment. Mm, the government want proactive measures from companies to get more women onto boards. Shouldn't the MOD be doing something to change the makeup of this board? Well, it should be doing more to bring women into more senior roles, that's for sure, both in rank terms and in uh, ministerial terms, because they, I mean, people shouldn't be brought into the board in some sort of token gesture. The key to getting more women involved in army management is that they have to be at the higher ranks or in the ministerial teams. It's as simple as that. Well, this week's frank discussion was specifically about the Army, but the RAF and Royal Navy are not immune from criticisms of their culture. James Hurst has been speaking to former group captain Vicky Gosling and asked if she ever felt affected by laddish culture during her 21 years in the RAF. No, I didn't. I felt that actually there needed to be um, some progression in terms of the numbers of females and the la- for me it was more a case of actually uh, not having sufficient female mentors at the senior level and that's clearly changed there's still a lot of work to be done um, but I do feel actually progression has been made and uh, but in terms of did I experience a laddish culture no I, I no I didn't actually I I've been very fortunate to have been surrounded by some of the most professional um, and selfless people I've ever met. And trust in the military is absolutely key, as you will know. So, and I, I, I found trust at every level. It's clear some people's experience is different. It's clear the most senior figures think there is a cultural issue to address in the army in terms of the treatment of women. What is the best way to affect that cultural change, do you think? In order to improve what's going on, they need to act now, you know, and I think it's all about attitude. I think it's all about the commitment to the task in hand and ensuring um, that they are increasing and improving uh, the equality and diversity, you know, making it more attractive for women to join. But also, you know, it's going to take people being really committed to the task in hand and making sure that there is zero tolerance to this poor behaviour. How do you demonstrate that zero tolerance? I think the zero tolerance is the fact that everybody is accountable. Everybody has to hold each other to account. And so you can't, there should be none of this brushing things under the carpet. That's not acceptable. It's creating an environment of trust where people can speak up and speak out if they feel that there's something inappropriate and they, and that they don't feel you know, intimidated. There needs to be the psychological safety to do that. Vicky Gosling speaking to James Hurst there. The FBS, the Forces Station. This is Sitrep.
European countries have accused Belarus of an organised attack on the EU this week because of attempts by thousands of migrants to cross the border into Poland. Belarus President Lukashenko denies European claims that his regime is orchestrating the situation. Poland has sent thousands of its troops to the border and NATO, accusing Belarus of using a hybrid tactic, says it stands ready to assist. Migrant numbers have swelled in recent months on Belarus's borders, not just with Poland, but also Lithuania and Latvia. Petrus Ostrovicius is a Lithuanian member of the European Parliament. I asked him for his assessment of what's happening at the borders between Europe and Belarus. Lukashenko is a dictator. He tries to use uh, migrants whom he organized, uh, brought to uh, Belarus from third countries, to Minsk, and then he push them uh, on, on the EU borders. Uh, we consider it as a hybrid attack using uh, weaponizing uh, migration any migration route uh, which goes through belarus it's not a natural route it's systematically organized and uh, exercised uh, action which uh, i consider myself as a political and military pressure on eu organized action you say what evidence is there that it's orchestrated by the regime in belarus and who are these migrants exactly how are they being recruited Around 80% are Iraqis, mainly Kurds. So the rest are uh, Syrians, Western uh, African countries, uh, as well as present, uh, some Afghanis, uh, some are of Russian origin, so, but mainly dominated by Iraqis. Uh, the action is orchestrated by the state-run so-called uh, tourism companies, which issue visas, uh, which provide them the flights, uh, temporary accommodation in uh, Belarus, and then in organized groups, uh, they are brought uh, on the border, so and pushed by border guards and uh, militaries uh, from the Belarusian side. They are organized, they provided information, and even trained how to cross the border. Mm. And what's in it for the Belarus regime? What are they trying to achieve? I think they uh, simply uh, put the pressure and it's kind of revenge uh, on uh, EU because it's uh, absolutely reasonable response to the crackdown on civil society and, and fundamental rights in, in Belarus. But now they are in a kind of absolutely hostile mood and I believe they are really supported politically as well as financially from Moscow. And how is this affecting Lithuania in particular? Oh, very directly. Uh, since um, June this uh, year, around uh, 4,200 uh, cross-border crossings um, and people we accommodate in Lithuania. Every night uh, since then, we have around uh, 100 or 200 attempts to cross, cross the border. So it's, it's a huge um, well, burden on Lithuania. These migrants are human beings caught up in all of this. What's the solution here? Does NATO have a part to play? Um, I hope, I mean, NATO will be not a part of the play. Um, uh, I think uh, EU might be enough, I mean, to resolve this crisis situation. But we should speak um, a clear, strong and uh, very, you know, uh, decisive language uh, to Lukashenko as well, probably to pass some message to Putin as well. But I think we have to uh, stop, first of all, uh, flights from third countries. That's why I am awaiting for the final decision to sanction airlines as well as airports, uh, which might serve as a basis for departure as well as arriving to Belarus. Secondly, of course, we, we have to help those people in need. Uh, that's why, for humanitarian reasons, uh, we accept uh, families and women uh, from uh, those groups trying to cross the border, but probably not everybody. 
Petrus Ostrovistia speaking to me earlier. Uh, Michael Clark, if Belarus is trying to cause instability, how effectively is it doing that? Well, very effectively along the border areas with Poland and with uh, other Baltic states. I mean, undoubtedly, um, President Putin is behind this. It's a uh, it's a tactic for creating distraction, for creating dissent within the European Union. And, and the Russians see this as a zero-sum game. The more they can uh, dis dislocate Western politics, then they think that Russia automatically gains from it. And Belarus is completely in Russia's pocket. So Lukashenko will uh, will do whatever Putin urges him to do. He would like to get a reduction of sanctions uh, on Belarus. But this, of course, is going in the opposite direction. He won't he won't pressure the EU into reducing sanctions by creating a bigger crisis for the EU. And Petrus Ostrovitius doesn't want NATO to get involved. If it did, would that be playing into Belarus's hands? Yeah, it, it would. He's absolutely right about that. If this becomes a militarised crisis, then the Russians get what they want out of it. And Lukashenko then can claim it's a national security problem for him. It's national defence against the West. So this is an EU crisis. It's not really a NATO crisis and shouldn't be. And Petrus is exactly right. I mean, his answer is exactly the same as my answer to this. The Belarus could be isolated in terms of air traffic and, and land borders and just cut Belarus off from the Western world to show that this is not acceptable behavior on the part of Lukashenko. And of course, people say, oh, yes, but if you do that, you just drive Belarus into Russia's pocket. Well, it's already in Russia's pocket. There's mm. no, nothing to lose in that respect. Michael, stay with us. Iraq's new prime minister survived an assassination attempt this weekend. The attack was on his home in Baghdad's high-security green zone. There were no armed militiamen or suicide bombers. Instead, according to Iraqi authorities, three small drones loaded with explosives were sent. They say two were intercepted, but one reached the prime minister's home. Iraq has blamed an Iranian-backed militia. Iran has denied involvement. Well, Professor Peter Lee is a drones expert from the University of Portsmouth. I asked him what he made of the attack. Well, I think it's almost a natural progression of the use of small drones. It has been mooted for quite a few years and similar uses were seen in Syria at least four years ago, around 2017. So it's, it's not... In a sense, it's not a new technology and it's not even a very new application, but perhaps using it in that place in Iraq for an attack on the Iraqi Prime Minister is showing an escalation in the ambition of those who are trying to use this technology. And the drone that made it through damaged the building. It injured six people. It didn't cause any deaths, though. Can we read anything into that about the limits of how lethal uh, these off-the-shelf drones can be made? Yes, I think we can. I've looked at the images analysing the blast effects and it's, it seems clear to me that it has been a fairly small drone. It's looking at the, 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 the blast radius. It, I, I would estimate maybe the size of, between the size of a tin of Coke and a bottle of Coke, if I can put mm. it that way. But then there's also the quality of the explosive. Was it, was it high quality, um, high explosive? or was it slightly uh, less high quality or was it repurposed from some other kind of munition? So there's quite a few questions that we don't know the specifics to, but I would have expected had it been a larger drone that could carry 10 or 15 pounds, and that would have cost 
quite a few thousand pounds to, to buy. If it had been one of those larger drones, I would, I would have expected to see uh, significantly more damage. And two other drones were intercepted, so defensive methods do exist. How advanced are they, though? Defensive uh, methods against small drones have been a weakness for years, and it's very hard to limit the the access of these small drones. And we can only take the word of the people making the statement that they intercepted two. Mm. We, we, we've got no evidence. I think if I'd intercepted two, I would have been showing the evidence to the world to show off my capabilities. So I tend towards being a bit... Um, a bit sceptical about mm. them doing that. And it's only a couple of years since Gatwick Airport was shut down for an extended period of a day or more because of an incursion of, of a small drone or drones. They're, they're very difficult to identify then to shoot out of the sky. They're, they're small moving targets. You mentioned the, the Gatwick drone experience. How prepared are countries like the UK for this kind of attack that we saw in Iraq where terrorists could turn an off-the-shelf drone into a flying weapon? Well, the flying part is the easy part. Uh, the, the more difficult element is finding high, high explosive in a way. High explosive is very tightly controlled in, in the UK, but mm. in countries like Iraq, where there's been significant fighting for many years, there are huge numbers of grenades and unexploded mortars and other, other sources of explosive that could be repurposed. So in the West, um, it would be easy to get the flying capability, much harder to get the explosive capability, and then to have the expertise to make that explosive go off at the instant you want it against the target that you want to hit. I think there are many other ways of being far more destructive, but that, that technology will continue to develop. Professor Peter Lee, Michael Clark, on this specific attack in Iraq, Iran swiftly sent a general to Baghdad to, de- to deny involvement. What do you make of that? I think he was probably speaking the truth. I I doubt if the Iranians were involved in this directly. The point is there's been a a group of of Shia militias camped around the green zone uh, in the middle of Baghdad since the elections uh, just about a month ago because they were the losers from those elections. They claim the elections were rigged, which they don't seem to have been. And the prime minister, Kadimi, he's a former intelligence officer. He's close to the United States. He is a target, and I suspect that a series of breakaway militias have decided that they want to try to assassinate him while the politics go on as to who is going to mm. form the next government. I don't think the Iranians were behind this because it, doesn't, it wouldn't suit their purpose to try to commit an act like this. Today, the 11th day of the 11th month, the country has fallen silent to mark Armistice Day and remember all those who've given so much in service of their country. As part of this Remembrance Week, for the first time, a Garden of Remembrance has been created at the entrance to Parliament on the initiative of the Commons Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them. This is showing how much we think of those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, but also those who came back, who've seen their comrades die. They have been fighting for the country. This is our way of saying, 
Thank you for those who have fallen, but thank you for those who have served. This is the 100th year that the UK has marked remembrance at the moment the First World War ended and the 100th year that the public have given to the poppy appeal to support those who've served. But how long should that continue? A question we put to the National President of the Royal British Legion, retired Lieutenant General James Bashall. I think we should continue as it is for as long as it's required. Our beneficiaries uh, are growing older and they require more treatment, more expensive treatment. We're dealing with a lot of mental injuries at the moment. So we are spending more year on year than we've ever spent before. And we're also raising more as well. So the poppy appeal is a very important part of our fundraising. We have evolved and we have changed. We have broadened remembrance. We now like to talk about remembering everybody, not just military personnel, but also all those we've lost across society. And we think particularly of the National Health Service and the workers in the National Health Service who've lost their lives to COVID in the last 20 months. So I think remembrance will remain an important part of the British fabric of, of what we are. While the imagery of the poppy and the timing of the national silence date back a century, the work of the Legion is very much current. It estimates there are more than two million veterans living in the UK. Terry, a veteran of the Royal Corps of Signals, has been telling me how the RBL helped him. I was in a bit of a, a dark, well, a lot of a dark place with um, alcohol misuse. Um, I've been drinking ever since leaving the forces, to be fair, and... I'd struggled getting any help anywhere, um, so I sort of picked up the phone, um, saw the uh, the telephone number, and and, uh, and luckily, with persistence from the British Legion, they they kept ringing me, but I wouldn't pick up the phone um, due to the fact that I was in debt. But um, yeah, the lady on the phone, she. She kind of listened to my story and at the end of the call there's something I'll never forget what she said. Okay, Terry, you know, we can help you. I just need you to be sober for a month so you've got a clear head. And Terry, what help did they give you? What didn't they give me? They're still, they're still helping me now, to be fair. I've been two years sober clean. They basically just sat me down and said, right, let's see what's going on with you. Um, they put me in touch with uh, their debt advice team and they went away and did their magic, whatever they did. And they helped me with a debt relief order, which totally took the pressure off me. Because they're taking the stress of me and my alcohol misuse away and, and the debts, um, I was able to focus on just me. Um and they'd phone me every couple of weeks just to make sure I was still in a good place, um, which was really important because they they understood my military background, the, the RBL. Um, mm. And and in, it, even though the charity has been amazing, um, the the misuse the alcohol misuse charity been amazing. They just didn't get that I needed help with somebody who understood where I was coming from. And how are you now, Terry? Well, I'm, I'm in the best place I've been in since I left the forces, to be fair. And I'm sober, um, which is the main thing. It's two years, October the 19th, it's a date that sticks in my mind. And 
they've, they've, they've given me um, funding to be able to do a, a counselling course, which in the future I, I really want to help um, veterans in the same sort of dark, chaotic place that I was. That was Terry, a veteran and now an ambassador for the Royal British Legion. Michael Clark, how long do you think remembrance in its current form will be part of our national culture? Uh, oh, for quite a while yet, I think, because the you know the First World War was the beginning of total war, the mobilisation of society as a whole, and as a result of that, you know we're a different people now than the sort of people we were, say, in the 19th century before the First World War, and although you know, the Second World War you know killed twice as many people as the First World War, the fact is that represented a moment in history which goes deep into the emotional soul of the sort of people that we are and I think as the British Legion recognises it's part of the fabric of our society and I think that will persist for quite a long time. Michael Clark, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll leave you on this Armistice Day with the voices of some of the people who've been planting poppies at the National Memorial Arboretum in memory of their loved ones. Goodbye. Well, that's from father. He was a telegraphist on HMS Duke of York in World War II and he was involved in the last great naval battle when uh, they sunk the Sharnals. It's for my dad. Um, he was in the Royal Artillery. Uh, he was 15 and he lied to his mum. He's the they left school at 14. His mum thought he'd gone to work and he signed up, went to war. He was injured. Fortunately, he came back. Nelson Waterfall. He's a second cousin. He was descended from one brother, I was descended from the other brother, and he died on the 1st of July 1916 on the Somme. He's 19. Well, it's just such a, a shame that he died so young, and he's just not forgotten. He's just not forgotten. Mm-hmm.